This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, December 6th. A showdown over the carbon tax. Conservatives vow to stall Parliament until parts of that policy are scrapped. We'll ask the government if it's willing to blink. And from one carbon fight to another, Canada is set to announce a cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector from the sidelines of COP28. We'll speak to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who's also in Dubai. Plus, another hold on interest rates. When will the Bank of Canada start to cut? We begin with the ultimatum issued by Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. He's threatening to hold up House business with just seven days remaining before Parliament rises for winter break. We are going to put in thousands of amendments at committee and in the House of Commons, forcing all-night, round-the-clock voting to block your $20 billion of inflationary spending and the rest of your economically destructive plans until you agree to our demand to take the tax off farmers, First Nations, and families. Now, we asked to speak to the opposition House Leader, Andrew Scheer, or any member of the Conservative Caucus, but no one was made available. But for the government's response, I'm joined by Government House Leader, Karina Gould. Uh, Karina Gould, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Okay, so the Conservatives say they're going to carry out obstruction tactics in the House, at committee, unless you move on lifting the carbon tax for farmers, families, and First Nations. What's your response to this? Well, they're being absolutely ridiculous, and they're being totally disingenuous with Canadians. First of all, uh, you know, when they talk about the price on pollution, I mean, this is not the silver bullet that is going to lift the high cost of living. In fact, there was a really important CBC article that came out yesterday done by Trevor Toome, a Calgary-based economist, that showed that the vast, vast majority of Canadians get more back in the price on pollution rebate then they contribute to it. In fact, he said 94%, I believe, of those with incomes of $50,000 a year or less. So what they're talking about is actually taking money away from Canadians. And then when they talk about... um, you know, removing the price on pollution for farmers. 97% of fuels that farmers use already are exempt from the price on pollution. And all he is doing is trying to hold up important legislation that would help Canadians. He's talking about holding up legislation that would build more purpose-built rental units, that would create more competition in the grocery sector, that would set Canada's economy up for success into the future. And of course, the Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement. He is dead set against having any of these measures put in place to actually help Canadians, Canadian families, Canadian farmers. And so what he is doing is irresponsible, it's reckless, and quite frankly, it's not being truthful with Canadians and it's not leadership. Um, I I know the CBC article you mentioned, Trevor Toome uh, provided some of the analysis. The piece was written by Robson Fletcher, though. I want to give my colleague credit for his his good work there. Uh, But look, I I know you don't like what Pierre Polyev is doing, but they seem intent on doing it. And you do have these critical pieces of legislation that you want to get through. So I'm assuming the government is not going to capitulate to the demands to strip carbon price. I I know. So so where does this leave us in terms of Parliament getting its work done and being able to shut down on the 15th as as it's Look, Parliament will get its work done. This is one leader of one political party. He's not the only political party in the House. He's the only one that leads a party that is ideologically against uh, fighting climate change at all costs, apparently. Um, And he... um, 
You know, there's, there's three other parties in the House that support fighting climate change, that support helping Canadian families, right? Remember, his party has voted against measures like the Canada Child Benefit, lowering the age of old age security, um, access from 67 to 65, the Canada Dental Benefit, and I could go on and on and on. But we, what do you do with a bully? You stand up to them. And Mr. Polyev is trying his bullying tactics in Parliament, just like he directed his Conservative senators to do with independent senators in the Senate. Um, and so we are going to stand up against him and continue to stand for Canadians, not against them. And he, I have to just say this, David, I think he is really taking Canadians for granted right now. He is assuming that, um, you know, they aren't as intelligent as they are. They aren't as committed uh, as they are to making sure that there is a future for them and for their children where there's clean air to breathe and clean drink, water to drink. Um, and I have to say that Canadians should be exceptionally disappointed but with his silly partisan games that he is playing. Have you spoken with the Bloc Québécois House Leader, the NDP House Leader, to work together to, to push through whatever the Conservatives are going to do here? Because as you said, this is the only party on this particular policy path. Can you count on the cooperation of the other parties to, to, to get your legislative agenda through Parliament? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, look, I mean, when it comes to these other pieces of legislation, they have voted in favor of them already. Um, it is only the Conservatives that are playing these obstructive games. I have to say every other party Liberals, NDP, Bloc, Greens, we all have respect for Canada's democratic institutions and respect, most importantly, for Canadians. And what he is doing is disrespectful not just to our democratic institutions, but it's disrespectful to Canadians. And quite frankly, he should be ashamed of what he's doing. I, I think, uh, Minister Gould, the, the la one of the last times you were on the show, uh, we, were, we talked about Anthony Rota and what was happening with the Speaker's office at that time. And now we have another controversy about the Speaker of the House of Commons because of Greg Fergus's video and, and his decision to go off to, I believe it's a NATO parliamentary conference in Washington, while the House is debating um, whether he has uh, violated the privilege uh, of the members of the House of Commons. Where does the government stand on, on Greg Fergus's tenability as the Speaker of the House of Commons? And, and did he meet him, make a mistake going off to Washington? Well, look, I mean, I think we can agree that the video was inappropriate, and that's why the government has supported the motion in the House for this to be reviewed at the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. I think that's uh, the appropriate place for this to be uh, discussed, and of course it will be up to Parliament to decide what next steps are. However, um, you know, he did apologize to the House. He recognized the mistake that he made, and he did promise not to do that again. We do have a tradition in the House of Commons that when someone apologizes, we accept it and we move on. Um, but that being said, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee will do the important work that they need to do, and uh, we'll, we'll see what their report says and go from there. But, but it sounds like you don't feel on its face right now that this should cost Mr. Fergus his job. A lot of people said it, it was probably poor judgment, but not necessarily a firing offense. Is that a correct uh, assessment of where you are on it right well, now? Well, I would say it's very rare that um, a speaker is, you know, asked to resign. Um, the earlier incident that you mentioned was probably one of the most egregious mm -hmm. examples that we have seen. Um, and I think that, you know, Mr. Fergus has apologized. Um, however, we do support the fact that this is a serious matter um, and that we do want to ensure the absolute impartiality of the Speaker. And that's why I think having the Procedure and House Affairs Committee 
look into this, um, do it in a, in a way that is thoughtful, um, and come back to the House with their recommendations, we're going to follow that process. You know, I, I've been speaking to a lot of Liberals about this over the last little while, and, and they say similar sort of things, but then they also said when they saw him at a Christmas tree lighting in Washington, D.C., and, and going off to a conference while this was playing out on the floor of the House of Commons, like, oh, this makes it hard to defend you know, uh, the situation. I mean, does it make it more difficult for you when, when, when he makes this decision, given the context? I mean, speakers are free to travel and go to conferences, mm -hmm. but when what's happening on the floor of the House is about him, should, should he not be close by? Well, I would say he did recuse himself um, from the entire process, and so the Deputy Speaker, uh, Chris Dontremont, has been presiding over the House, and I think, you know, as we speak, uh, the debate on privilege is right. ongoing, and so, um, you know, Mr. John Tremont is overseeing that right now. Again, the Speaker is independent, he's making his own decisions here, um, however, he did recuse himself, um, and my understanding is he will be back tomorrow. Okay, uh, w one final thing to ask you about, because uh, going back to where we started with the Conservatives sort of threatening to gum up the machinery of Parliament and committees over the carbon tax. Uh, we're told that the government's going to announce a, an emissions cap for the oil and gas sector tomorrow. Uh, I know you're not going to give me any of the details on that, though please feel free if you want to share. Uh, but but this, this could very well spark uh, a fight at the provincial level with the federal government because of the, the opposition to a lot of your climate agenda, but exacerbate the situation in the House of Commons. Uh, I, I mean, do you really think uh, you, you can keep things on the track if this controversial climate measure comes tomorrow on top of uh, what's already happening in Parliament right now? David, for the past three elections, we have run on a price on pollution and we have run on fighting climate change. We are not going to back down on one of the most existential threats to not just us as Canadians, but all of humanity. We know we have to fight climate change. We know we have to take serious steps to reduce our emissions, and we're going to keep doing that. Just because Pierre Polyev wants to hold Canada back, he wants to take us, not just hold us back, but take us backwards to a different era, um, that's his decision to limit Canada's potential in the future. He has a small, narrow vision for this country. Ours is completely different. We know that we can be leaders in the 21st century when it comes to having a green and clean economy, and we know that it will bring continued prosperity for Canadians. He doesn't believe in that. That's his problem, but we are going to make sure that we continue to set Canada and Canadians, most importantly, up for success. But, but he's tapped into something on the affordability argument uh, of it all, uh, Minister. I mean, that's kind of undeniable in terms of where public opinion has gone. So, so just what do you say to people who, whether they agree with the analysis done in the article you referenced right off the top, that they think these carve-outs would leave them better off? What do you say to them? that he's selling you a false promise and he's selling you falsehoods because it's just not true. If we look at what's driving up the cost of everything right now, there are two, ma three main things. One, coming out of the COVID pandemic, you know, the world is in a challenging place. That's happening all over the world. Two, is the illegal war of aggression by Russia in Ukraine, which is having a significant impact on world food prices and oil prices, and his uh, insistence on denying and blocking the Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement is one that all Canadians should be concerned about, because if he cared about those costs, he would be supporting this, and he'd be supporting Ukraine, but, but he doesn't. And then the third thing is climate change. We have had a summer of droughts and wildfires and floods 
How do you think that's impacting farmers and their yields here in Canada, but also right around the world? And so Mr. Polyev can make stuff up all he wants. He can try to uh, you know, say to Canadians that if I get rid of the price on pollution, everything will be better. That is simply false because there are global forces, both man-made and natural, that are having an impact here. And I know Canadians understand that. I know Canadians are smarter than what Pierre Polyev thinks. Um, but the fact of the matter is we understand there are affordability challenges. And right now, in the House of Commons, there are real measures that can go into legislation to help Canadians with housing, with the cost of groceries, with fighting climate change and setting us up for the future. And he is blocking all of that for his own ideological commitment to denying climate change and denying real measures that would fight it. Government House Leader Karina Gould, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. The Bank of Canada isn't delivering more pain to Canadians, but it's not bringing any relief either. The bank is holding interest rates where they are for a third straight decision. They're still 20 times higher than they were in March of last year. So when will they start coming down? Peter Armstrong is not the governor of the Bank of Canada, but he might know. He's the CBC senior business correspondent, and he joins us from Toronto. So, Peter, you know, what, what can Canadians take away from this decision by the bank today? You know, David, it's, a, it's an interesting announcement, statement from the Bank of Canada today, if only because it goes to great lengths to not say very much. It feels <laughs> like a real placeholder until we can get into the new year, and I think we'll start to see the conversation change around then. But this whole statement, about a page long, goes on to just sort of say where the forecasts stand, what data have come in, and what they have told us. And there's one line, one very crucial and important line in the whole thing that I think people need to walk away from. Uh, and the bank says, over over all these data and indicators for the fourth quarter suggest the economy is, and here comes the big part, quote, no longer in excess demand. That feeds off what Tiff Macklemon said a couple weeks ago, that he feels that interest rates have sort of done their job and, and they're, they're sufficiently restrictive enough to get prices back, price stability uh, back in order. And, and that, that's where we've been, right? That's what all of 2023 and a lot of 2022 was about, was getting to a point where finally we could see some price stability and that we wouldn't have to raise interest rates anymore. Now, the Bank of Canada goes to pretty great lengths to say, if inflation rears its ugly head again, we're ready to pounce and we'll take all action that we need to do. But I think it really opens the door to a conversation when they meet again in January and potentially into late winter and spring about what does that mean going forward? What is a more neutral rate of interest? Uh, how quickly are we going to get there? But right now, in today's statement, they didn't want to have that conversation, so they didn't give us much more than that line about we are no longer in excess demand, which is great news, right. but it doesn't tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we've gotten used to, to a lot of forward guidance over the last couple of years, but not really much there. So we have to go back to the old-fashioned way and ask what are the economists saying about right. the road ahead? What, what are the soothsayers of the economy giving us? Yeah, it, it's interesting because now we're starting to get a lot of those, those reports. You know, C.D. Howe had a great report uh, with their Monetary Policy Committee sort of s trying to game out where they think interest rates are going to be in the next sort of three months, six months, and a year. Uh, one of the things I like to follow is the, uh, the overnight index swaps, which is just a way for investors uh, and, and traders, really, to bet real money on where they think interest rates are actually going to be. Uh, and right after the decision today, I went over to the Bloomberg terminal to check this out. Um, 
They're pricing in a 20% chance of an interest rate cut on the meeting in January, January 24th, a full 72.5% chance of a cut by the April meeting. And if you cast that out all the way to the end of next year, the implied rate that these traders think they'll be dealing with by the end of 2024 uh, will be 3.9%. So full point, one percentage point down from where we are now. And that that's not even, you know, we're, we're hearing Desjardins was talking to Royce Mendez today. Their forecast is 3.5% by the end of next year and all the way down to 2.25% wow. by the end of 2025. Okay. All right. Uh, finally, a silver lining and some economic news. That's the CBC Senior Business Correspondent, Peter Armstrong. Thanks, bud. The official opposition is promising to tie up the government's agenda in a fight over the carbon tax. We are going to put in thousands of amendments at committee and in the House of Commons, forcing all-night, round-the-clock voting until you agree to our demand to take the tax off farmers, First Nations, and families. He can make us work late. We're happy to do it because we're doing important things for Canadians uh, while he's pulling stunts. There are two bloc parties in this House of Commons. There's the Bloc Québécois and there's the Bloc Everything Party, and the Bloc Everything Party is the Conservative Party of Canada. Okay, all of this move uh, comes after senators narrowly voted to amend a bill that would carve out some farm heating fuels uh, from the carbon tax, at least for grain drying, and that could see the bill sent back to the House. This all led to a rowdy question period and a conservative MP being kicked out of the House. Prime Minister lied and his minions continue to lie about whoa, whoa. Order! Order! The honorable member who got here at the same time I did knows full well that you can't use that word. The honorable member of Battle River Crowfoot, will you be retracting that? It's the truth. It's the truth. I will not apologize to the Prime Minister, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Curick, would you mind leaving us today? All right, so how will Canadians see this fight over carbon tax in the temple of our democracy? It's time to bring in the power panel. Amanda Alvaro is a political commentator. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And here with me in the studio, Jordan Leichnitz is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Sherelle, I want to start with you. Uh, what the heck is happening in the House of Commons uh, right now? Um, the, the Liberals are not going to cancel the carbon tax on everything. The Bloc doesn't support it. The NDP doesn't support it. The Conservatives can't get this like what do you make of where we are i mean it's uh, we've been seeing for for weeks if not months if not years um <laughs> just it's it's just evolved into playground bullying name calling um you add the social media on top of that i mean we saw the the uh conservative mp get kicked out of the house today it was and i as soon as it happened i was watching question period today as one does and as soon as it happened i said okay within five minutes this is going to be on social media and bingo and it was yeah <laughs> and they're going to using it for you know fundraising and all the other things which another conservative mp did the last time they got kicked out um there's no real they will play to the base the base will love it the base will eat it up Everybody else is just going to get turned off and turned away. And that is the best time for politicians to carry on with these shenanigans when nobody is paying attention. When people just start to tune them out because they say people in this room, in this place, in this temple of democracy, as you <laughs> called it, which I know you're kidding, well, <laughs> to no. a degree. In theory, in theory. I mean, it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, but it's this is not, nobody's treating it as, you know, a sacred space. They're treating it as a place where they can go and throw tantrums and and basically get away with it because they know that ultimately people don't care. They've been 
doing this long enough that they've mm. soured people on you know, the theatrics of especially question period so that when the actual work is getting done, nobody's watching. Okay, I was looking at my computer while you were talking, not because I wasn't listening to you, because I needed to double-check something that I was just told. And Jordan, I'm going to get your reaction to this if I can. This speaks to what's happening in Ottawa right now. So Ken Hardy, who was in some hot water for his tweet last week that we talked about, he has tweeted about Pierre Polyev saying, why doesn't he just stamp his little feet and hold his breath, especially the hold his breath part? That is, instead of tabling over 20,000 amendments to one piece of legislation, referring to the filibuster, basically, hold your breath and stop talking. Rachel Thomas has now objected to this, saying the tweet insinuates that the leader of the official opposition should commit suicide by holding oh. his breath. <sighs> well, I think we've officially reached peak silly season. That's yeah. probably what this is most indicative of. I mean, look, I think it's really clear that... Some of the, what's driving a lot of the worst behavior that we've seen out of the conservatives over the last few weeks is the desire for clips for social media. Uh, I think some of this stuff is no exception. Um, and really, I think uh, for better or for worse, Sherelle is absolutely right. Most Canadians are not going to notice or care about what's happening. This is for a very narrow audience. It's to rile up the conservative base. I think in a lot of ways, this is appealing to them. Um, and on the other hand, uh, are they actually going to make the government sit through Christmas? No, they're not. They'll come to a deal. Everybody will go home a few days early, as is what usually happens. So I think this is all pretty predictable. And what it really mostly has the net effect of is turning people off politics, unfortunately. It's really mm -hmm. reinforcing the idea that this is an unpleasant business with unpleasant people. Amanda, isn't that part of the strategy, though, uh, to win? Mm -hmm. that uh, the conservative base is motivated and shows up reliably. Uh, it's low turnout for the other parties. That really hands mm -hmm. them uh, an advantage. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it has handed them an advantage, but I think that they're pushing really hard into territory that has the, the, uh, the opportunity to really turn people off, as others have suggested on the panel. I mean, it's, it's obstruction, it's derailing parliament, it's taking away from important debate that needs to happen. And while I agree that people are at home watching every motion and, and checking on all the amendments and really like checking the box on how many hours have been uh, devoted to debate, I do think that they're tuning in the clips that turn up on their television sets and it was interesting I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a, a 10 year old and she was asking us questions and she said her first question was why do politicians have to be so mean and I thought you know it was it was sort of it was illuminating because that that is the overall message that we can't get things done that we are mired in these problems that there is a lot of bullying and when people are really feeling their at-home pressures and we've talked about them a lot the affordability pressures and other issues as we're heading into the holidays the last thing people want to look at on their television screens is a bunch of adults screaming at each other and threatening to hold up parliament to get the job done so i do think that the conservatives sometimes like while they use the tactics to get the headline they may have pushed this one just a little too far but you know tim there's the canada ukraine free trade agreement uh there's the measures on on grocery competition and various uh, you know uh, rental housing these are things the liberals need to get through it seems like the bloc and the new democrats may help them do it to push it through in in, in time to get on the calendar i don't know um but you know is there a consequence to be had for for being obstructionist on this if it really is just about the carbon tax 
I don't think so, and I think that's what the conservatives have have calculated. I mean, we can step back to different eras, and there have always been theatrics, particularly around this time of year. Go back uh, in the days when Brian Mulroney was Prime Minister, David, and, you know, the Rat Pack, of which one of those members became the Premier of Newfoundland and a senior minister, Brian Tobin, in the day. So th there's always been this. I think Amanda makes a good point, though, that the conservatives do have to be mindful of. You... In, in this era, and rightly so, you have to watch between the theatrics and actually moving to a place where you are or can be accused of bullying. Then, then, then you're in a bit more of a different place. And for Polyev, who um, is doing very well among mm -hmm. female voters uh, who are particularly attuned to issues around bullying, that's something you'll want to pay attention to. But by and large, look, I flew down here today, David, and not one person on the plane, shockingly, was talking about the theatrics in the House of Commons. <laughs> what this reminds me of is the hockey game I was at last week between the Florida Panthers and the Ottawa Senators, and you'll remember this one. Fights all night, fights all night. Finally, the referee, when he had enough, he gave everybody a game misconduct. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, Greg, uh, Greg Fergus can't do that because he's in his own hot water right now. The last point I'd make about all of this, um, for Polyev and the Conservatives, I think what they're hoping will happen, too, is beyond the noise of the hijinks and the back and forth and all of that, they'll be able to drive a message to people who are out now holiday shopping, who are going to the grocery store, who are paying for gas and things are tough. And if they hear anything from the mainstream media clips, what I think the Conservatives hope they hear is somebody's trying to get you some relief. So there's, that's a bit of the calculus as well. But, you know, Sherelle, Tim talked about the, the risk of being seen to slip into bullying and that's what happened in the Senate, right? I mean, I mean the Speaker of the Senate mm -hmm. found that conservative uh, leader in the Senate and other conservative senators, their attempts to intimidate independent senators on that carbon tax legislation, uh, 234, was a breach uh, of their privilege. And, and it went beyond. So they're trying to, like, gum things up in the House and bully things through uh, in, in the Senate. And, and it's not really making anybody happy, it seems. No, it's not making anybody happy. It's making... And it's worse than not making people happy. It's making people unsafe. And I think that mm -hmm. is where... It's, that's kind of like a microcosm of what we're seeing throughout the rest of society. It's like, yes, there's there are words that people use, and in this case, it did cross over a little bit into more than words, you know. Uh, Senator Platt, you know, he did admit to getting up, going over to these senators, and, you know, basically yelling in their faces. Um, but that expands to, you know, we see in social media, we see in all these other platforms where people, it starts with words, and then it turns into actions. And yeah. the more people see, you know, our political leaders engaging in this sort of behavior, and then just kind of brushing it off, I'll go, we're all just here to to do our jobs and so you got a you so you got some you know hate mail you know suck it up like that doesn't yeah, there's no sympathy for the senators i found from the conservatives they're like all oh, the poor senators you know it's like someone had to leave their house because security and the cops told them it wasn't safe exactly right? and mm -hmm. like you can't so you cannot say that that is acceptable and then at the other hand have you know conservative mps like you know rachel thomas saying you know saying what she's saying um and thinking that that's going to be okay that people won't emulate this they're big on personal responsibility, um, especially on the conservative side of the House, but they don't ever quite seem to make that connection that other people are, are listening and acting on their words. Yeah, I, I, the uh, verbatim I've just been sent by the helpful people in the newsroom, it insinuates that the leader of the official <laughs> opposition should commit suicide, and so I'd like to give him, being Ken Hardy, the opportunity to apologize for that statement and to retract it. I have no idea if Ken Hardy apologized. I get the feeling they may not take that as seriously as Rachel Thomas does. Uh, but, you know, Jordan, at, at the heart of all of this is a fight over the carbon tax, mm -hmm. and, and it's 
it's important to talk about the facts on the carbon tax. And, and my colleague Robson Fletcher did a piece uh, out of CBC Calgary, quotes a lot of analysis by Trevor Toome, who's a very credible, well-known uh, economist at the University of Calgary. Unless you are a household of more than $250,000 in annual income, you get more from the carbon rebate than you pay in the carbon tax. And from the Bank of Canada on down, it's been made very clear that a lot of the food price, the carbon tax is a very, very small part of inflation because these same cost pressures are in jurisdictions that have no carbon price. So how does the government get that message out? Uh, does it need to get that message out? Because it feels like Canadians need to know what they're making a decision on, and a lot of them don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the Liberals need a time machine on that one, <laughs> <laughs> regrettably. Yeah. Uh, they, they needed to get the message out on that years ago. They needed to build it into the rollout of the program. Most Canadians who receive their rebates for the carbon tax have no idea what it is. It doesn't come to them labeled in any way or in any way that they would connect it with the carbon tax and inherently a system in which you're taxed and then reimbursed even though even if the reimbursement is marginally more than what you're taxed it doesn't make sense to a lot of people and there wasn't a great deal of effort put into communicating that early on and so it was really ripe for the conservatives to take that um, and turn it into the axe the tax campaign that they so successfully have i mean look every empirical analysis shows exactly what you say which is why it's such an interesting question about what the conservatives hypothetically would do about the rebates uh, were they to get into power and axe the tax because this is a, a fairly a substantial amount of money for a lot of Canadians um, and I think you'd have an interesting conversation if you they were to start talking about clawing that back um, but no, there's no question. The Liberals have a massive communications problem on this, and my view is that it's actually too late for them to correct it. Uh, you know, Amanda, I always remember my grandmother talking about getting the baby bonus from Joey Smallwood because it came every month, <laughs> and it was the yes. baby bonus, and that's why she yes. voted for him uh, right up until the, yes. the early 70s when everyone threw him out. Yes. Uh, but but it, it, there's none of that with the carbon the climate nope. incentive, whatever it's called, that shows up every quarter. Uh, it feels like it, you know if you want to make it more politically successful. It should be monthly and labeled and this sort of a thing rather than the way it is being handled because they have a problem on their hands with how people feel about this. Yes, you're totally right. And it's, you mentioned the baby bonus and any of us who are old enough to remember that, remember how significant that was. Yeah. And part mm -hmm. of it was like the labeling of it, the baby bonus, the bonus, so, you know, the words rebate kind of flies over the head of a lot of people as well. I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Jordan said, which is, you know, difficult as, as sort of the liberal member on this panel, because <laughs> the communication strategy of the government has been really, really challenging on this one. Um, does it mean that they can't turn it around? I don't know. Not necessarily. I think that it would require a significant effort in terms of investment. Um, the, the branding on this has really gone to the conservatives. The conservatives have been able to brand it as a tax. They have really been able to brand it. You know, this we don't talk about it as carbon pricing. We talk about it as the carbon tax. It's part of our vernacular now. And I think that, you know, that in and of itself is a challenge. When you ask, you know, the average person, do they think that they're paying a carbon tax or do they think that they're somehow getting money back? for the same thing. I think it's very difficult for people to really rip those two apart and understand um, if there's any connective tissue at all. So a, a rebranding effort, a significant, consistent communication strategy on this one over and over again uh, would be job one. But mm. is it too little, too late? Perhaps. So, so Tim, just to come back to your, your flight home, and, and nobody was talking about the antics uh, of what's happening here in the House of Commons, but 
that doesn't mean it doesn't matter, you know? And that's what I wonder about. Like, where does this go? Because uh, the threat made today, and we'll see where it goes, but that feels like that kind of Republican-level obstructionism we've seen in Congress at various points in the United States, like the full sort of shutdown of the legislative agenda. Like, it seems to go a little bit beyond filibustering, trying to jam people into Christmas. It'll affect, you know, all the staff and people who work there. And you stick that on top of the, the privilege finding over the way conservative senators treated independent senators, there, there is something here that, that is a bit off. Well, first of all, I think we have to put some Newfoundland context on things. When David Cochran was born, uh, Joey Smallwood delivered two gold bars to the Cochran family. <laughs> that was the bonus that yeah. David was to Newfoundland and Labrador from my fellow panelists. My grandfather distrusted Smallwood serious. so much he founded a union. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> now, now to the more serious nature of David's question. Um, yes, in as much, yes to the point that you know that there is a danger here of this going too far and trends in the South kicking in here but I think that is being uh, accepted because there is so much frustration in the land right now and the responsibility then does fall to both the conservatives and the liberals to try and manage that anger and displacement that people feel out there but neither is really doing that super well I think the conservatives feel I don't think they're entirely wrong on this that they have a bit of rope to move here um, because people are so very much irritated. I think people are less concerned about parliamentary decorum and language and antics that go on there than they are about their own pocketbook at the moment. So in other yeah. times and in other sure. places, and our audience aside, look, this audience, to be fair to this audience, they care a lot about this issue, and God bless them for doing that. But that isn't broad spread across the country. And I think other people are prepared to, you know, let a little bit of the rabble-rousing, rowdy behavior on the edge of being going too far go if there's a benefit to them in the end. And I think that's what Polyev is trying to push. But it is playing a little bit, can be playing with a fire if you're not careful. But, you know, Shirelle, there's about a week left, in theory, in, in, before <laughs> Parliament rises for the break. And essentially what the Conservatives are asking the government to do is... Uh, reverse a core policy they've been elected on three times and which is supported by every party in the House of Commons except the Conservatives. It seems like a, a tough ransom demand. Simple. What am I going to mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, why, that's why we know it's not going to go anywhere. That's why it's... It, and, you know, to, to Tim's point, talking about this being uh, something that's bubbling up from the South, I don't even know if I would say that. I, it's, I think it's very much baked into the Canadian system. We've, and we've yeah, seen it uh, multiple times yeah. uh, since, uh, at the very least, since Trudeau has been Prime Minister, where the Conservatives have, you know, said, we're going to have you here and we're going to vote all night. There have been numerous yeah, yeah. Uh, marathons. Sure. On votes, um, but I don't think. But and that and it hasn't changed the channel yet. They have yet to, you know, make the government do what it is that they say that they're going to do, and they have yet to actually follow through. If they want to, you know, surprise us and say this time we're actually going to do what we say we're going to do, and nobody's going home in whatever way they can do that. I don't, I don't know if it's actually procedurally possible mm -hmm. uh, to go past uh, the December fifteenth. Then I'm happy to be surprised. Well, I don't want to say I'm happy, but I'd be <laughs> I would be surprised and interested to see how that actually plays out because it hasn't happened before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jordan, just as a final.
final point, though, it seems like there's this larger political narrative of kind of dysfunction happening in the country, right, with certain provinces <laughs> saying we're not going to collect federal taxes. You know, yeah. Essentially, uh, the opposition and, and some premiers saying this government has no authority to govern. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And look, confrontation and conflict is built into our political system. Mm -hmm. Just just look at the mother parliament in, in Britain, right? So this is something that you're never going to get away from. But I think where it reaches dan a dangerous place and a toxic place is where when you don't get the political win using using the tools that are legitimate inside the system that you try to block or overturn things um, that in ways that are against the rules, in ways that delegitimize the system. Right. And that's what you're seeing from, from some of those premiers like Scott Moe, for example. And I think that that's really where the conservatives risk overstepping the line here. There's no, there's no issue, you know, if, as Tim says, they're operating within the rules and they're, they're going to capture people's interests for working on their behalf, for, you know, if people think that about the carbon tax. But at a, at a certain point, this also could impact his likability. And Canadians may not want to vote for an arsonist. Well, uh, none of this has hurt him so far. I mean, I got to say, you got to look at his numbers. The man knows how to tap into a zeitgeist uh, and, and mobilize uh, money and, and volunteers, that's for sure. Okay, uh, I want to thank the Power Panel Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Lakenitz, Tim Powers, and Amanda Alvaro. Thanks, gang. Thank you. The federal government will announce its promised emissions cap for the oil and gas sector tomorrow. Sources tell CBC it will be enforced through a cap-and-trade system, and the reductions will be lower than the Liberals' original target. Certainly we have been working on this uh, for quite some time. Uh, I think we have developed something that actually uh, methodologically is, uh, is very logical and actually I think Canadians will understand and appreciate. Uh, the Prime Minister said we would announce before Christmas and, uh, and uh, I would expect that you should see something quite soon. Now, earlier today, I spoke with Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who is at COP28 in Dubai, where tomorrow's announcement will be made. She told us this. They asked us if we'd be prepared to sign a non-disclosure agreement and they'd tell us what they were going to impose on us. Does that sound like cooperative federalism to you? Because it sure doesn't sound like it to me. This is another area where we have been very clear that we can work with the federal government on a pathway to carbon neutral by 2050. We know it takes time to develop the technologies, to develop the carbon capture utilization and the pipeline and all of the different innovations we're going to need to get to that target. Pose, imposing some kind of arbitrary time frame, an arbitrary limit in seven years is simply not going to cut it. it. It will result in a production cap. And when you have an emissions cap that is unachievable, too short a time frame, it is a de facto production cap, and, and we will fight that. We will not allow them to shut in our, our resources. So I just want to go back to the beginning of your answer. Did they ask you to sign an NDA in Dubai? Correct. This is the, the frustration that we have with the federal government's approach, is that if you want to come here and work together on celebrating all the things that we are doing in common, we've got a great story to tell. We are in, we are in a leadership position in carbon capture utilization and storage. Both Alberta and Saskatchewan have scale projects that are being talked about in forums all over COP. We ha have also just announced net zero uh, petrochemicals with Dow Chemical, net zero hydrogen with Air Products, net zero cement with Heidelberg. And part of that was because we worked collaboratively on a, a tax credit regime that uh, has been attracting that kind of industry. We could have come here with a joint message celebrating the, the ways in which we're working together. And instead, we see these games being played with unilateral decisions being announced, NDAs having to be signed, 
to me, that's what I find frustrating is that's that's not the, the spirit with which we should be approaching this kind of conference. So, so Premier, did they ask you to sign the non-disclosure agreement? Because I, I would assume that there's potential for this to have some market implications. I don't know. Or is it simply because they don't trust you as Premier of Alberta to stay quiet about it and let them announce it? Did they explain to you why they wanted you to sign the NDA? They- they don't respect our jurisdiction. They they don't respect that they, they actually should be working cooperatively with this. I don't believe that the that uh, an environment minister has the ability to override the constitution. I don't believe that the environment minister should be acting in a unilateral way. I think that this is something that is so important, has such a major impact on the development of our resources that uh, they should be working collaboratively with us. So uh, needless to say, I didn't sign the NDA, so I don't know the details of the plan, and I'm sitting back waiting just as much as anybody else for what they're going to drop on us. Okay, you you keep saying they're not respecting jurisdiction and the Constitution, though they would argue the Supreme Court decision is on their side when it comes to omission. So I I know uh, you're you're not going to uh, agree with their interpretation on that, but just as a final point, uh, does this set up further legal challenges, uh, more actions by your government uh, through the Sovereignty Act? I I mean, what do you do knowing that the methane has been announced and the oil and gas emissions seem imminent? It certainly does set us up, I think, for a collision course, because I would argue that uh, when the case came down on the carbon tax, they were arguing they needed to treat everybody the same, no matter where they lived and no matter what kind of consumer they were. were. I think they blew that argument out of the water, quite frankly, when they did a carve-out on on the carbon tax emissions for Atlantic Canada and for those who are using home heating oil. But I think that it's an even weaker case to try to make that you're going to to put a specific type of approach on a specific industry centered primarily in a specific province. That is clearly them trying to use a federal jurisdiction to invade our jurisdiction provincially. And that's why I say we won't stand for it. And I'm, you know, I'm prepared to do what it takes to make sure that we continue to have the autonomy over the development of our resources. We're a responsible producer. We're going to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And I'll be prepared to fight that one out. Okay, so I reached out to the government to ask about uh, Daniel Smith's claims of being asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and I was told by a government official that that is, in fact, the case. The offer was made last week, and Daniel Smith uh, refused for the reasons she outlined just there. Uh, But the government official also made it clear that it is normal practice, or common practice, in in their words, that uh, non-disclosure agreements, stakeholders are asked to sign that when given early access to important government announcements, and certainly something of the significance of an oil and gas emissions cap would qualify uh, for that level of importance. So just some context on that. Now, also at the COP28 summit, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo announced plans to cut methane emissions in the oil and gas sector by at least 75% by 2030. And Premier Smith was also not happy about that. You know, we had talked about how we were going to begin a consultation with the, our industry to see whether it was feasible to get to a 75 to 80 percent emissions target by 2030. And we're still in the process of, of figuring out what is feasible without shutting in production. And so to have the, the federal government come in and essentially overlay a, a new policy with, without consultation, with, without uh, working with us on it, I, I find it offensive, frankly, because it is our provincial jurisdiction to manage our resources in our own way. We are making great progress on reducing methane emissions. We're three years ahead of of our initial target. And we feel like there's a process we should go through to make sure we've got industry buy-in. That's the way that you get success. I have to tell you that 
having these unilateral decisions announced out of the blue, I don't think that's what cooperative federalism is supposed to be. Well, they, they say they've been talking to industry about this, and industry feels these targets are achievable and, and reasonable. And in fact, if, if anything, this is the cheap and, and easy stuff to do when it comes to reducing emissions. So if, if the companies think it's doable and, and reasonable, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that it's Alberta that owns the resource. We own 85% of the resource, and we hire the energy companies to develop it on our behalf. And so you don't go to the contractor when you want to change the, the rules. You go to the, the person who owns the resource. That's, I think, our, our fundamental problem that we have with the federal government, is that they don't respect the Constitution. They don't respect that we do have the, the right to develop our resources. The, they don't respect our ownership. And they should be coming to us first. We should actually have been able to come to COP together because we worked out a plan that we both agreed with and we're able to announce it jointly. The, the workarounds are something that we've become accustomed to with the federal government and the, the Supreme Court keeps slapping them down for behaving this way. I wish they'd stop it. But, but on this one, uh, Premier, and I know we've talked about this uh, in, in multiple times, this is emissions, right? The Supreme Court has ruled they can regulate emissions. So this is clearly within their wheelhouse to do. And, and industry acknowledges that this is something that they need to do and want to do. So uh, they're not overstepping here by regulating emissions because the Supreme Court decision says that they can do that. The Supreme Court was very clear that they were making a very narrow decision on a very specific topic, which was the carbon tax. And they did say that if there was any additional regulatory schemes, it would not, their judgment would, would, have, would, would not necessarily apply there. And in fact, in the meantime, we've won two court cases where the federal government has overreached. In the case of plastics, which they tried to declare toxic, mm -hmm. the government uh, the, or the, Supreme, the federal court said that it was unreasonable and unconstitutional. And in the case of them trying to regulate away our ability to make environmental decisions, they said that uh, they couldn't do that either, that it had to apply to federal projects on federal lands or international. So I would say we've got two recent court decisions that have, have admonished the federal government to behave in a way that's more collaborative. And rather than accept the judgment of the court, they've been acting in a way that, that oversteps. And so we're going to, to continue to try to get them to respect the, the way the, the government or the, the, the country is supposed to work and to work collaboratively with us. They haven't taken us up on that so far, unfortunately. Okay, so tomorrow is going to be controversial, and we'll have extensive coverage of the federal government's oil and gas emissions cap announcement expected from COP28 and also from here in Ottawa. We're going to speak to Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault in Dubai and get reaction from provinces and environmental groups and hopefully industry. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.